we're all born somewhere. The stork, you know, lays us down somewhere in the world. Mine laid me down in Philadelphia, in South Philadelphia, uh, the, na- the neighborhood Rocky Balboa was filmed in. And uh, I was born in 1959, and my earliest memories actually are above that street and looking down at my feet on a marble staircase up and down the block of red book brick row homes. And uh, it was an Italian neighborhood, essentially a Sicilian neighborhood. And there was a little Lebanese enclave that had been there for about a century when I was born. Um, And I realize now, looking back on it, that a lot of the reason I was able to navigate Beirut was because of that childhood in Philadelphia. Hmm. Because it was a neighborhood, I mean, it was a city of neighborhoods, first of all. And a lot of the power dynamics that allowed me to negotiate the civil war here in Beirut, I understood intuitively from growing up in a neighborhood, which was, you know, a small, tight-knit neighborhood, an ethnic neighborhood, among many other ethnic neighborhoods, where there was, there was power dynamics and there were hidden power dynamics. It was a mafia neighborhood. Mafia. It was a mafia, mafia, Sicilian neighborhood. And as I looked up and down the block, on one corner was a pool hall, which was actually a front for a gambling operation, which was in the back. And on the other end of the corner was a Greek Orthodox church founded by these immigrants, and a pizza parlor, and pat steaks. And uh, growing up in that neighborhood and having to navigate the city, you, you had to... Uh, you often went into neighborhoods which were not familiar, and you had to navigate those neighborhoods which were ruled by gangs and bosses and that sort of thing. And so when I came to Beirut, I found it really easy to understand the, the neighborhoods of Beirut and who's in charge of the neighborhoods and who you have to speak to in order to enter this neighborhood and photograph, especially in wartime when they all have guns. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah. So Philadelphia set you up for Beirut. Yeah, in a real way. I understood the, ge- the mental geography of Beirut. I understood the power geography of Beirut. Wow. I, you know, and uh, as much as knowing who each militia was, you know, which was important because back in the Civil War days, you know, you had to keep track. Is this the insignia of the Marabitun, the PFLP, the DFLP, uh, Amal? Uh, Uwait Lebnani, uh, the Lebanese army. You had to be able to recognize the Pink Panthers, the Syrians. You had to recognize the symbols of power, whether it is the kind of gun that they carried or the kind of uniform they had or their insignia. So you had Harakat Amal and Uwait in Philadelphia. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if that says good or bad for that poor city. <laughs> but you, well, are, are, I is, mean, it, is it communities that live side by side in a way? Because I hear you saying it's almost like a not divided, but you know your turf in Philadelphia. It was divided. There were gangs. There, mm. were, there were street gangs. There were Italian street gangs. There were black street gangs. There were Irish street gangs. And when you crossed from one neighborhood to the other, you had to n- negotiate. And, uh, and this is when you were a kid growing up. This is the 1960s America. Hmm. And uh, so it was a different time and a different place. And we had a different relationship to photography and the world. And sorry, then. you grew up in the Sicilian part of philadelphia south philly yeah. south philly were there other lebanese americans there with you there were two city blocks of lebanese uh-huh and they had all come over they began coming over in 1876 
when uh, actually Philadelphia was home of the World's Exposition. It was the centennial anniversary of the United States in 1876, mm. and so the World's Fair was held there. And the Ottoman Empire had a pavilion in, at this World's Fair. Oh, wow. And contained within this pavilion was a Syrian table or whatever it was. Mm. And somehow or another, my great-grandparents got recruited to bring olive oil from Kura to Philadelphia. So mm. it's three generations before you yeah. that arrived to Philadelphia. Yeah. So sorry, your grandparents and parents grew up there. Yeah. My own, my father actually grew up here. But oh, your father on my, returned? On my mother's side. I see. They, yeah. Okay. They yeah, go way back. So the Lebanese-American experience in Philadelphia, for you, in a way, is not that different from a Beirut that you enter during your career. Absolutely. Yeah. That's fascinating. I never thought these two cities had anything in common. Yeah. I mean, it's important to know who's the tough guy on the block, who's the boss. So I know you were much younger, and it's before photojournalism becomes part of your life. But can you give me any flavor for what negotiating with mafia there is like? Does it mean joining a group? Does it mean siding with one team? Did you get into fist fights? I mean, there's different levels. There were gangs there, and then there was the mafia. But kids had street gangs and corner gangs, kids mm. hung out on the street corner and had little groups and, you know, like, yeah, they would get into trouble and run in packs and that sort of thing. And then there was the mafia. And the mafia, you know, the, the rule was, <laughs> I see nothing, I know nothing. And so, uh, yeah, but you realize that things are not always the way they seem. There was a bicycle shop in my neighborhood that never sold a single bicycle. But what was going on downstairs was something else entirely. <laughs> I think the bicycle shop is selling bicycles here. <laughs> you had not been to Beirut before you moved here. So Beirut to you was brand new when you finally decided to move here. But I'd like to build up to that moment. And I, I actually have been to the village. Oh, sorry. You'd been to Lebanon. Okay. I had, I had been to the village, but the village is in Kura, Kusba. Mm. And... You know, Beirut is far, far away. So we came on a sightseeing trip or two. I see. But uh, yeah, I didn't really know it. But you didn't spend that much time on those trips. So really, you're, and I'm sorry to speak on your behalf, but your identity, if that can be attributed here, was more American growing up than Lebanese. Is that a fair way of saying it? Or did you feel like you were Lebanese-American? Well, both. Both. Well, both. I mean, it was an era before identity politics. And mm. so my parents did everything they could to have us grow up being like everyone else. And so they never stressed speaking Arabic, although yeah. their customs and their way, you know, was Lebanese, Lebanese. And my grandparents really didn't speak English. I was around it, but we lived in an American world. American world. Like my Sicilian friends as well. You know, their, their grandparents didn't speak English either, but, you know, they were American kids. I know you've said this before in different platforms, but you're a student in California. When you make a bold decision to leave the U.S. and make your way first in Europe on your way to Beirut, and you would later become a photojournalist and a wartime photojournalist. I want to go back to that moment. There's a, a news bulletin that in a way changes your world. And I want you to take me back to you as a student 
when you decide the story being told here is not being told necessarily the way you relate to and you have a passion that's being explored so take me back i guess to the 1970s yeah i mean in in the 70s you didn't hear about lebanon you didn't hear about palestine and mainstream corporate news i mean i what i knew about the world was you know the magazines on the doorstep life magazine time magazine and the middle east was never mentioned but it began being mentioned beginning in the 70s when the palestinians started hijacking planes and uh, when the Lebanese civil war began. And what I was seeing was so at odds with the culture that I knew, and it was hard to wrap my head around it. And I studied poli-sci at Berkeley, and I had intended to go into the foreign service, and I was a serious student. And But I was always troubled by the fact that we were talking sort of casually about doing a cost-benefit analysis, for example, if a bombing of a particular village, for example. Uh, and I thought, how can you really discuss this rationally if you've never been in a village that's been bombed? So I wanted to see it for myself on some level. And I, so I came here just intending to spend one year, just seeing the Middle East up close and, and personal. But because I had been a hobbyist photographer and I needed something to do, I brought my camera with me. And yeah, I, had, uh, I sort of had this, this vague notion of becoming a photojournalist or becoming a journalist and telling the story of what was happening here. So the hobby, you're not a, you're not, there's no photojournalism career before you enter this entire conflict here. But the hobby and the camera that you bring with you, there's a particular news bulletin that marks you. And if you could maybe open up a bit about that and why that, why that event is dro really drove you from California. Well, I mean, I was essentially political and you know, that was a time of activism. That was a time of a lot of activism towards ending apartheid and supporting the uh, the revolutions that were happening in Central America and South America against dictatorships. But there was no talk of Lebanon. There was no talk of Palestine at all. And, you know, I in Berkeley, we'll have a demonstration at the drop of a hat. Mm. And there were demonstrations every day. And one day in June, the Israelis flew into Beirut and they bombed two apartment blocks in Fakani, killing dozens of people, if not hundreds of people. And it was reported like this in the news. Just this a little, is pre-Israeli invasion yeah, of pre, Beirut. So yeah, this is two years prior. Two years before, okay. Yeah. And I thought, there is something profoundly wrong when all my progressive allies have nothing to say about Palestine. It's not on their lips. And it's not that they're bad people, they just don't know. It's not on their radar. And people forget how much terrain we've traveled in terms of recognition of the Arab story, about knowing what's happening in this world, and, and being able to see reports that are actually uh, dispatched by people that have an empathetic point of view. Uh, so there, were, there was nothing. There was nothing. And I thought that was really profoundly disturbing. And I thought, well, maybe the best thing that I can do is go there and rep report, report on these things. But it was kind of a half-baked idea. <laughs> and you just happened to have your camera with you. Well, I mean, I had intended to be a writer, but I was also a photographer. I had never sold a picture. I wasn't a very good photographer. But I also understood that photography is a process, and it takes really 10 years to be a competent photographer. But I jumped in, and I thought, you know, if I sit here and I wait for somebody to ask me to go, 
I'll be sitting forever, so I better just go. It's quite remarkable. A half-baked idea could turn someone into one of the most important photojournalists that has considered Lebanon home and documented this country. So I'm going to guess it's not really just a half-baked idea. I think it's a passion that you brought with you. And you find yourself in Beirut. And I guess you already know how to navigate the city because you grew up in Philadelphia. That helped. I mean, so could you could you take me to that moment when you're entering Beirut and you have an advantage that's a peculiar one? You see a divided city and you can navigate it. You know, I, ne I never studied journalism. And so I was sort of learning as I went. And I was staying in a little youth hostel on Humber Street. And I figured, what do photographers do? They, There's their youth hostels during the Civil War? It was a club. It was actually a club that okay. had like ah. ta table tennis tables and pool tables. And they had a side room with bunk beds. And you could uh -huh. stay there for $2 a night. Wow. And uh, yeah, we were so broke. We had like a month in arrears because we couldn't afford the $2 a night. So uh, I was with my best friend from college. He was also a photographer. And... Was the poor guy Lebanese as well, or just like a... No, he's an American guy, uh, Michael Nelson. He's actually a great photographer now. Oh, he okay. became, he had sort of a, a really notable career with Agence France Press and others. And uh, so not knowing any better, we heard... At those times, it was always popping off along the green line. And it, there was sort of levels of it. There was popping off with machine guns, and there's popping off with small explosions and there's popping off with big explosions so you know we heard it popping off with machine guns and such and started walking <laughs> towards the green line and i was thinking in my mind as we get closer you know we pass through these neighborhoods we'll know it's really dangerous because there won't be people on the street but i hadn't factored in to it that you know they've been fighting here since 1975 people were used to it mm. and we walked right into the middle of essentially a firefight and so you're walking from hamra to downtown yeah right? basically like through Witwat and up into basta and you know the ring area now mm. and uh what happens is right away you get captured <laughs> so we get right away surrounded by a bunch of teenagers with machine guns and so i asked them who's the boss because that's rule one so boss one identifies himself and he says, okay, you're our, you know, you're coming with us. So we, we went with them and we sat down and they had a little office and they had filing cabinets and do, we do you remember which cigarettes. group this was that I think they were Marabitun and, uh, although I didn't know who they were at the time anyway. So we smoked some cigarettes and I told them what I wanted to do. And the fact that I had sort of broken antiquated Arabic, I think they found charming, hmm. uh, and so we said, we want to see the war. So they said, okay, come with us. And they opened up these file cabinets and there's like flashings on the top shelf and then like ammunition belts on the middle shelf and like on the lower shelves, there's like RPGs and rockets and they passed them around and they said, okay, come on, let's go. And so we went out with them and uh, they skirmished along the green line. I, I was so raw. I didn't know like, like... I remember the first time the guy wanted to fire a B7, an RPG. And I thought, okay, I'm going to get a really great shot. And so I stood directly behind him. And he said, no, 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 there's going to be a huge flame <laughs> flying out of here in just a second. 
and we learned how to like open your mouth so that your eardrums don't pop and you know we took a bunch of pictures and ended up selling them to the associated press and they ran a picture story called machine gun alley they taught us how to write captions they told us how the business worked so this is really on on the on the ground training yeah, yeah. are any of the photos that you're mentioning right now are they in that instagram collage by chance uh there's one picture from those days which is actually an example of a spot news photograph spot news photograph yeah because we used to print eight by ten black and white okay maybe i could actually then note it here so there's two two collages of photos the internet suddenly doesn't work was it in the in the second pile here It's uh, this one. Oh, it's the one with more tower in the back. This one with okay, so it's the second uh, photo collage of I guess it's the sixth photo swiping to the right of Burj Al Mur. So you take this on that excursion? No, not on that particular one. But that's an example of these news photos that we used to sell for sixty dollars each. They're called spot news photographs. And I worked for the Associated Press and then later United Press International. And we would go out and we would take photos and sell maybe one a week. And they would give us $60 and one roll of 36 exposure Tri-X film. And, yeah. I'm going to guess very quickly that what should be a very short trip turns into more than just a career. It's almost like a lifestyle that suddenly you're being... That's all you're doing. So that's before before the Israeli invasion itself. Yeah. So you're here as things are about to completely collapse. Bring that to life a bit. You're here. You're not supposed to be here. But suddenly you're a wartime photographer. And things are about to go to hell. Just what it's like to be here and doing what you're doing without losing your mind. I mean, it was very, very interesting. I mean, Beirut in those days, I mean, it's the same place, but a different place. And it was a place with no rules. It was a place with no law. It was a place where the long arm of the law could not reach you. It was a place where renegade CIA agents went to hide out because no one could nab them. Uh, It was like a time of revolution. So they were revolutionaries from El Salvador and south africa and you know all around the world here uh italy ireland uh so it was an exciting place also especially for a young person especially for someone young who had studied political science it was really really interesting you said it's it's like today but not like today yeah how is it like today what is the is it that there's always a collection of oddballs that want to work here and make a career that doesn't sound so so good? <laughs> Lebanon is Lebanon. I mean, even in, in the wartime, there was an exuberance to the city. We would go out at night and we would drink and dance and listen to music. And Where, where did then, you go in those years? Where were you going out at night? We used to go to Uncle Sam's a lot. Uncle Sam on in Hamra. Yeah, on the oh, street wow. and the Blue Note and Blue Note, yeah. On this side, uh, Beirut Cellar and uh, So you would cross the green line in those years. Yeah. You would go back and forth. It's I had the privilege of being able to cross back and forth because I was an insider outsider, you know. 
You know, it's a shame. The three places you mentioned, I know them, and they just recently shut down. Mm. Blue Note, I think, is gone as well, right? Recently, yeah. And what was the Beirut Cellar? Not that long ago as well, shut mm. down. Uncle Sam, I think, a while back. Yeah. I remember Uncle Sam from years ago. So the nightlife was energetic the way it is today. That I kind mean, of buzz. It, from time to time, you know, I mean... Lebanon has an exuberance, which is undeniable, really. I mean, people like to say, oh, you know, we're not resilient, we're not, you know, this, we're not that. You are. This country is. And it's one of the beautiful things about this country. Um, yeah. It, uh, it's funny because thinking back on the Civil War, I mean, it, it is a grim, grim time. It's horrible, horrible. It's like a car accident. But there were moments that were funny, and there was life here, and it, you know, it wasn't all doom and gloom. And yeah. So I'll leave the Israeli invasion for a bit later, but you're mentioning actually quite important things. You're, you're living what feels like also a, not a normal life, but you're getting by. And the humor, I'm going to guess, reflects both. In other words, it's chaos, but you're also trying to just be in your 20s, living a, a reasonable life. So what are these funny moments exactly? I mean, they're darkly funny. Oh, darkly <laughs> funny. Well, let's go there. We'll get you another drink as well later. We had a tenant problem in my building. <laughs> so I can censor this later if necessary. After <laughs> I established myself a little bit and was able to move out of the youth hostel, I moved down to Ayn Muraisi, hmm. uh, to the street where the La Jolla Street suites are now. Uh, just parallel to yeah the uh, british embassy was on the corner right and uh at that time and i shared it with my friend mike nelson and, and another friend who will remain nameless uh and she had a cat is he in this room <laughs> it's a woman <laughs> it's a woman i see <laughs> she had a kitty cat she was an american woman who was here studying at georgetown the school of uh, advanced arab studies and she could speak perfect Arabic, but she chose to speak Arabic like a baby. And she was blonde and very voluptuous. And she used to flaunt it. And so she would dress sort of like Marilyn Monroe in the middle of the Civil War. And Sorry, this is your roommate? Yeah, our housemate. Her housemate. housemate. Okay, yeah. And she would say things like, Ana biddi wahdi haik. And so she had a kitty cat and it went upstairs to the apartment of the people above us and they were these irish kids like in our, our age sort of like mid-20s and they had like some connection with the ira and they were bad news and they were like on heroin and anyway the cat goes upstairs and the crazed irish guy takes the kitty cat because he had a parrot and he goes to the balcony he throws it off the balcony luckily it hit a tree and got stuck up in, in a tree but our roommate, who is the most manipulative person I've ever met, was really, really pissed off. And one night we were coming back from <laughs> Uncle Sam's and there were stairs and we sort of, you know, roll down the stairs and roll down our street. And there's a car parked in front of our building with a guard. He was sleeping there with a machine gun. And she goes, watch this. And she knocks on his window. And he, he wakes up and he says, oh, you know, Madame Christina, what are you doing? This is like oh, you didn't You just named her? That's fantastic. Uh -huh. Thank you. <laughs> and <laughs> and she said, 
I just wanted to tell you how much I appreciate you being here to guard our house every night. And every night that I go home and I tuck myself in bed, I can sleep soundly because you're here, you know. And can I get you anything? Can I get you coffee? Can I get you a sandwich? And he's like, well, la madame, no, 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 you know, it's my pleasure, it's my duty. And so she says, um, Tom, you're a, a druid, a, a druid, a, a druze, a druze, is that how you say it? I said, yeah, yeah, madame, I'm a, I'm a druze. And she said, uh, and your leader, his name is Walid Jimblet, Walid <laughs> Jimblet. And she said, yeah, yeah, yeah. I said, why do you ask? And she said, it's just something the guy upstairs said. <laughs> oh, <my. laughs> I said, well, what did he say? And she started laughing and she said, I'm sorry, I don't think there's a word in Arabic for this. Forget it. And he said, no, 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 really, what, what is it? What did he say? What? Didn't, didn't he have a baby recently or something like that? And he said, yes, yes, you know, there's a new baby in the family, blah, 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 blah. And she said, what is it? Well, he, in my country, there's men who like other men and not women and he's telling everyone that he had to pay someone to make his wife pregnant <laughs> and this guy's face just goes slack it just <laughs> goes slack and she goes okay good night <laughs> and like some time passes and we don't see the guy upstairs around for a while <laughs> <laughs> and finally, it was two weeks. It was exactly two weeks later. We see him, and he's completely buggy-eyed and like going crazy and shaking. And he said, "I don't know what happened. I, I I was walking down the corniche, and a car stopped. And these guys pushed me in the car, and they started beating me up. And they were saying something about Willie Jim Blot. And the <laughs> and he spent like two weeks chained to a radiator in his own pajamas." <laughs> <laughs> That is funny. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know where to go from there. <laughs> is the cat... Uh, the cat was alive. alive. The cat's alive. Actually, <laughs> Christina persuaded me to climb out off the balcony onto the tree and That's rescue the cat. the cat. That's how persuasive she is. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know where to go from here naturally. I'll try to... I mean, this is, um, well, you know, it tells you the... There was a place full of weird people. Like once, it was actually in, I guess the war had started, the invasion had started. And one day Michael came back to me and we're talking about what happened during the day. And he said, I met America's real black Rambo. I said, what do you mean? And we met a guy named Isa Abdullah Ali, who is a six foot five African American ex special forces fighter who had committed a crime and spent time in prison in the United States. He converted to Islam. And actually, when he got out of prison, he dressed as a postman and drove down Embassy Row in Washington, D.C. And he assassinated the Iranian ambassador and disappeared. Wow. Only to surface in Lebanon. 
and when we met him, I mean, you met him. <laughs> well, I mean, militiamen oh. here, you know, used to dress sort of just in regular clothes and, you know, sometimes a cowboy hat or something, but that was it. But this guy was like six foot four, tall, thin, complete American combat regalia, Vietnam issued helmet, flak jacket, M16, you know, and <laughs> we met him. <laughs> he came home <laughs> and he liked us because, you know, we spoke English well and uh, yeah, he, he, he was something else. He would say things like, okay, say we're sitting in this building and uh, they're firing on us from down there. How are we going to kill them? <laughs> I would say, I don't, I don't know. How do we kill them? <laughs> and he says, okay, you take your RPG, you take the, the cap off, you get rid of the gunpowder, you pour in a mixture of gasoline and, uh, and uh, laundry detergent, and we fire it up into the building, and it catches fire. And then when it runs out, when they all run out of the building, then we shoot them. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so and I didn't really believe his stories, but apparently, after assassinating the Iranian ambassador, he went to Iran and joined the Revolutionary Guards. And he fought on the Iran-Iraq war front as part of a co leading a commando team with her own helicopter. And he worked for Mustafa Shamron, who was the, the general in charge of that front at that time. And I wouldn't have believed it except my friend Afar Yagubzadeh actually met him on the Iran-Iraq war, war front. He was with the Iranian army. And he said, you know, what's this American black commando doing with, you know, the Revolutionary Guards? That was Isa. And who was he with here then? He came with the Revolutionary Guards. So he's with them. At the beginning of the war, they dispatched a group of people who came and later trained the core of Hezbollah. Right. But they came actually to fight against the Israelis. Yeah. And he actually took part in a lot of battles. and So he stuck know. around? Yeah, yeah, yeah. What happened to him? He started losing his mind. And actually, by the time I met him, he already started losing his mind. And he started to have visions. And he would tell me about his visions. And But he was still like sort of an expert commando, and so still like a frontline fighter. But he would come to chill out at my house. And... But he started losing it, and like once when the U.S. Marines were, they they had a position down on the Corniche. The U.S. Embassy was along yeah. the Corniche. He like roars up with a trucks full of like militiamen, and right up to like the Marine parameter, and he sort of swaggers towards them, and he's like, you know, <laughs> I'm not going to say what he was saying to them, but he was screaming and cursing to them in in ghetto English. And they're like on the radio saying, Papa Bear 1, Papa Bear 2, we have a situation down here. We have a situation on the parameter. And all the, you know, the militiamen fanned out. And then he would roar off and he would just, he would just taunt them. And, uh, mm. and he got involved with someone in a love affair and he got shot up. Actually, his end was, he got, took six bullets like in the Hamra neighborhood after some failed love affair as often does people in. Was it Christina? <laughs> <laughs> but he went back to the States, and actually he's alive and living in the States, and there's a, a documentary Wait, sorry, about him. Sorry, I thought you said he got shot up. 
He got shot, but not killed. He was a tough oh, guy. Oh, he survived six bullets. Yeah. And he's he's alive. Yeah, still. he's alive and living in the States. Oh, wow. Are you yeah. in touch with him still? No. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's crazy, George. It was a weird place. It was a weird place. You're here during the invasion itself. What is it like to be here covering that terrible event? Is your camera with you 24 hours? Are you all over the place? What, what is it like? You're the first person I've actually asked this question to, because not many people, it's two things. Either they're not comfortable talking about it for valid reasons, or they're dead. Very few people, I think, are eager to talk about that chapter, and I'm fortunate that you were happy to talk a bit about that not just in my earlier podcasts, but in general. So I want you to say whatever you'd like about that stretch and maybe how it, how it shaped you and maybe even, and you said this before uh, we started, before we joined, before we met up here, you said you even have almost like tips on how to navigate that kind of terrain. So I'll, you have the mic. Well, the invasion was different. The invasion of 82 was different. It was, I mean, the Civil War was one thing. And the Civil War, it would come and go. It would ebb and flow like like the weather. And it was relatively contained. You know, shells fly so far on that side, they'd fly so far on this time side. Sometimes the war would extend up into the mountain. Um, but the Israeli invasion was different, partly because we all knew that it was coming. And it was like, a tsunami sweeping over the country. And it was terrible in a way because in a way you knew exactly what was happening. We knew that they had crossed the border, for example. They were coming in three columns. They had 80,000 people. Their ultimate goal was Beirut. Um, but you didn't know the outcome. It, and it was a very asymmetrical war because you had people on one side with World War II era weapons, and on the other side you had, you know, the Israeli army with air support and, and everything, everything, everything. Um, that said, it, it all played out differently than we thought. The South was quickly overrun. All the Palestinian bases, which I had thought would offer a lot of resistance, basically chose to fall back to Beirut. A parameter was formed around Beirut, and then for 79 days, it was essentially just saturation bombing. And so it's the experience of living under saturation bombing where you can't shoot back, and where you don't know where it's going to land, and where there's no food, and there's no water, and it's summertime. And you know, if they break through, who knows what's going to happen. Were you moving around at that time regularly, or were you, I mean, were you able to flexibly cover that invasion on your terms, or was it mostly confined? Uh, I got captured early on. <laughs> I got captured like four days into the war. And so that first part, I, up until that time, I was able to travel around quite a bit and shoot. Um, yeah, then it turned into another kind of experience you know, being captured and trying to find my way back and then finding my way back. Um, 
But what was interesting captured by the Israelis? By the Israelis. Um, yeah, I mean that is a situation where it, it really was like life and death, life and death, life and death, and one's ability to survive is just as much luck as anything else. It's just luck, just dumb luck. Um, and so, how do you tell that story? You know, as a photographer. Uh, I remember thinking that this is so much bigger than me. I really don't understand what's going on. You, you only know what you see in front of you. And so the best you can do is record that faithfully and not try to, you know, expound too much on one thing or another. And it became a daily grind for 79 days. People forget this. It was the front page around the world for 79 days. That's over two months. And just saturation bombing and death and saturation bombing and death. And occasionally they would try to break through. They tried to land a couple of times and amphibious landings along the coast, like uh, outside AUB Beach. And they were beaten back by machine gun fire and just sort of massed small arms fire. And the same thing uh, along the green line near uh, Mataf. That was another big push. And again, they only got a couple hundred yards and they were beaten back. Not by superior weaponry, oh. just sort of mass, yeah. small arms fire. And yeah, living here, you felt a real sense of vulnerability and who knows what's going to happen when they do break through. And, you know, what are you going to do? What's your reaction going to be? And everybody has a different reaction in those times, you know. Uh, my roommates, <laughs> after I was captured and I, I came back to Beirut, the roommate who shall not be named had amassed all these um, wine bottles and I thought she was just like not throwing them away but Isa had taught us how to make Molotov cocktails out of the wine bottles and how to throw them <laughs> and so the idea is you know when push comes to shove we might need to use them were you back in Beirut after the invasion when you got captured I came back right away yeah so you're still here as the invasion is happening. Yeah. So it's just within, I'm guessing, a few. Well, it had turned into a siege by the time I got back. So you're you're here during the siege itself. Yeah. yeah. Am I allowed to go a little further into this territory? Mm. Are, are, you're in Einem Reise yeah. during the siege. Mm. And you're a stringer still then? Or you're... <clears throat> Actually, I had been working for Newsweek, but after Newsweek, I, oh. I was captured, they took my assignment away. <laughs> So I was assign, assignment less. I see. But you're still documenting. Which actually, is, I'm sorry, no. but in retrospect, I teach this course on decolonizing global news reporting. And I realize this is like the perfect example of a colonial relationship with your editors. Because here I was, the Beirut, you know, contract photographer for Newsweek. I was captured by the other side. Nonetheless, I delivered my film I delivered film that showed the Israeli forces destroying houses at point blank range, rooms full of civilians screaming because they're being their houses being machine gunned. Uh, I mean, really strong stuff. When I delivered it to the newspaper in Jerusalem, the magazine came out the next week and it had two of my pictures, but it was pictures of Lebanese people shooting at Israelis. Those pictures were never seen again. And the only reason I have any proof is because they didn't publish black and white, and so I kept the black and white rolls. But 
I mean, in retrospect, I can't help but imagine, had an Israeli photojournalist for Newsweek been captured by the Lebanese, had somehow smuggled his film to the Bureau and got it to New York, that in itself would be a story. With me, I got fired. And so it was a different news landscape then. It was a different media landscape. And there weren't other avenues to publish this kind of thing. And actually, the story that my pictures ran with was called Israel's Terrible Swift Sword, which is an allusion to the Battle Hymn of the Republic, an American martial song, which is about how God smites the wicked with his terrible swift sword. So, that incident really caused me to think about working with the corporate media, what my pictures were doing, what they were really saying. Because a lot of these photos that I had taken in Beirut as a stringer with AP and UPI, they're what we call bang-bang pictures. Bang-bang? Bang-bang pictures. Pictures of shooting, pictures of explosions. Bang-bang pictures have a big place to play in raw reportage, but at that time there really wasn't space for photographs from Beirut that went beyond that. And so, in a way, it was disinformation. I'm sorry to interrupt here, but you're, you reminded me of what you said earlier, that you thought an Israeli attack on Beirut was being told unfairly years earlier. And then you're here during the siege. Is that the same feeling inside that you're now, you lost that opportunity? Actually, at the time, I thought it was my fault. I thought, uh, you know, uh, mm. yeah. It wasn't until later I realized, oh my God, that was, you know, that was the raw deal. (laughs) You're still taking photos though. Yeah. So I came back, I continued reporting on a freelance basis Mm. without a day rate, without anything. Yeah. And what happens in these circumstances is the big gun photographers from around the world come in. Yeah. So the assignment goes to so-and-so from Paris, to so-and-so from Great Britain, to so-and-so from New York. Are there any photos from the siege that were in that Instagram collage? Mm, yeah, there yeah, are. Yeah. So let's let's actually share them. I'll let you. Uh, is it in the first bunch or the second? One? Is mm, it one of these? That one. That one. Okay. Yeah, those two. I see. So it's the first, the first collage, and let's see, one, two, three, four, five, six, the fifth and sixth photo. In that uh, collage. Oh, I'm sorry. So it's just the fifth photo then. Thanks, Amar. Yeah. <laughs> that's I appreciate that. That fifth photo. That's a place called Magdushi, which is near Saida, and I think it was the first or second day of the war, maybe June fourth or June fifth. June fifth, and we had driven south to see how far the Israelis had advanced. And uh, we were up on the hill above Ain al-Halwi camp, and there was a, it's a place called Magdushi, and there was a anti-aircraft battery. And so we drove up there, and we visited the guys, and they were putting in ammunition in their anti-aircraft guns. And I could see these guns are, like, manufactured in 1947. And they have two barrels and go... <laughs> and their job was to defend Ain al-Halwi from airstrikes. Well, they were shooting at phantom jets. Yeah. Uh, 
And we knew that the bombings usually started around 10 a.m. So we got there at 9, and they're loading their weapons. And I'm thinking to myself, the first thing that they're going to take out before hitting on El Halloween is the anti-aircraft batteries. And so I'm getting more and more nervous as they're, you know, feeding, you know, the, uh, the belts into the machine guns. And so I said to them, you know, you're all heroes. You're a hero. You're a hero. You're a hero. You'll take a lot of you know. I'm going. <laughs> and so we drove down the hill. And uh, we got as far as the main road, the side uh, Beirut road. And we heard jets overhead. So we stopped the car. And I jumped down. And I put a long lens on. And I focused it on the anti-aircraft battery. And that's what that picture is. It's not in the collage, although we talked about a photo, and anyone can find it online, because the moment you Google search your name, it's either the first or second photo that shows up. There's this crazy photo of you and Yasser Arafat smiling together. And it's not in the collage, Google search, George Azar, Yasser Arafat. It really feels like a selfie before selfies, you know? It's like, uh, good job, guys. I want to know more about that photo. I really want to know everything about that photo why it was taken, who took it, why it's everywhere. That photograph was taken in 1983 in Badawi camp in North Lebanon. So after 82, Arafat sails away. He goes to Tunis. But he and his men smuggle themselves back into the country and are ensconced in Badawi camp. And there, there a power struggle breaks out between the Syrian-backed factions of the Palestinian movement, and Arafat's faction. And so Badawi camp was besieged by the Syrian army and these pro-Palestinian uh, Syrian-aligned factions. And again, it was saturation bombing, saturation bombing. It was in the wintertime. Is this when the Syrians were fighting Fatah? Yeah. So this is as the Syrians are trying to kick him out. Yeah, yeah. And so it was like the siege of Beirut, but it was even smaller because mm. it was in just one little camp, actually in two camps, Nahra Barad and Badawi. And there was a group of press people and Arafat's whereabouts were always difficult to know because he had to move constantly and sleep in a different place constantly. And so we heard that he was going to show up and he was going to give us a briefing. So we were all hanging around and in walks Abu Omar. And under crazy shelling, I mean crazy shelling, like the walls are shaking kind of shelling. And uh, I don't usually take selfies. <laughs> but, you know, it's like seeing Che Guevara or Fidel, you know. So we took one and he recognized me from, from the summer before. So this photo is your doing. You wanted yeah. that photo taken. I yeah, see. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And sorry, in the first collage, sort of halfway through, there's a photo of Arafat walking. Is that from that? That's from that same time. I see. So it's he's walking through the through the the groves outside of Trablos. Okay. So and you see, he's wounded on his hand. He was uh, he was wounded in that showing. Oh right, and he's in a cane as well. Yeah. So that's the uh, fourth or fifth photo from the first collage. And sorry, George, the initial photos leading up to Arafat, are those all from that stretch as well? No, this is from a little later. These are the three boys in the chair are uh, a group of um, Amal fighters I spent a lot of time with. They call themselves the Smurfs. 
and there's two 14-year-old boys on either end. So that's during the camp's war? Yeah. Okay, yeah. we'll get to that. Yeah. Yeah. Arafat is kicked out, and you're still here. And you're still... I, I have to say something about Arafat. Please do. Yes. He was an unusual little guy. An unusual little guy. <laughs> you want another drink? Because no, I'm fine. <laughs> sure. Okay. Can I get Can I get one for you? Sure. Can we get one more Ada for Estes George? <laughs> unusual little fellow. Is that how you described him? Well, I mean, he's my height. He's not a big guy, and um, I thought he was shorter than you. Even yeah, a little bit. Yeah, but you know, completely unpretentious in his manner. And very warm, actually, in his manner. And he's the sort of guy like you're sitting at a table and he'll scoop up something with Arabic bread and put it in your mouth. He actually did that to me once. I thought, okay, thank you, Amu. <laughs> and very austere in his life. He was slept in a little room, just with a little bed. He, uh, he didn't really have material things around him. Uh, he kept these crazy hours. He would be up uh, up all night, and was insanely brave, Thanks. insanely brave. In fact, that whole generation of Fatah leadership. By the time I met them, they were like stone cold war people. I mean, a shell hit the outside of a building once, and they're yeah. What are you so excited about? Yeah, yeah. Uh, and sorry, he knew you uh, by first name basis. He, so friendly terms. Yeah, yeah. How, how did you build that friendship? I mean, you're one of many photographers. I think he just saw me around. And the thing is, in those kinds of situations where there aren't that many people around, it's notable just being there. <laughs> the other funny thing is you couldn't take his picture without his uh, kafia on. Right. And I have the photo I'm most proud of is I took a picture when he had taken his hat off and you can see his shiny bald head. <laughs> Once I went to the Wafa office, Wafa, the Palestinian news agency, used mm. to be in Fakani, and they had these wonderful archives, which are all destroyed. And they had a photo archive, and they let me flip through them. So I was picking out some pictures, and I found this picture of young, young Abu Omar sitting under an olive tree with like all the Fedayeen around him. And he doesn't have his hat on. He has a bald head. So I, I picked it out, and I gave it to the archivist, and she looked at it, and she went, Oh, <laughs> and she tore it up. <laughs> Did Arafat know you took that photo of him? It was very, very oh, it was very quick. quick. Yeah, it was very quick. Do you still have a copy of that photo? Yeah, you do. Yeah. Yeah. Well, <laughs> you're here during anarchy as well. So the Israeli siege ends, the Israelis go south, and you're still here. You're no longer with Newsweek, and I'm going to guess this is when other sort of, is it AP those years, or is it? Uh, I started with AP, and then I went to a photo agency called Agence Gamma, okay. and I was with Gamma for years, and they would contract us out to news organizations. And you're still in Beirut. Yeah, I, uh, I moved back at some point to the United States, back to Philadelphia, and I worked at the Philadelphia Inquirer. Hmm. And that's actually where I got real photographic training because I got there and it was a great newspaper. And we had six Pulitzer Prize winners on the photo staff alone. So when did you go back to Philadelphia? Which year? I went in 85 
Hmm. And then late, they later sent me here on assignment to do a story about Mount Lebanon and about uh, sort of the other side of the Green Line. Oh, so and you go all the way to Philadelphia to get sent back here. Yeah. Yeah, and I came here a few times on assignment Oh, <clears throat> for them during the Alan Wars with the Syrians and, yeah, a few times. If you, I'd like to go down that road a bit. You're here during the Camps War? No. And, no. So you you come in 88 or so, I guess? 87, 88? Uh, the next time I came back, I came for... Which war was that? It was the war when uh, the Syrians were laying siege to Mount Lebanon and they were bombing Junier. Uh, no, more like 87, 88. Before they enter Babda. Yeah, when they were laying siege to Babda and Sugogarb and all of that. I guess that's 89, right? Yeah. 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 So you're back in 1989. So yeah. You've said this before, so I think it's okay for me to bring it up. You decided, after covering that stretch of Lebanese history, to turn your back on Lebanon. Yeah. What exactly is it that happened? Is it just a string of terrible events that you wanted to never set foot here again? Or is it one particular moment that was defining? No, it's just I had had it up to here. I had ceased being a regular person. He's being a regular person. Yeah, mm. yeah. I mean, there's a certain choice when you decide whether you're going to become a war, real war photographer or not. And real war photographers are a different breed. And I didn't. I wasn't interested in going. Sorry, if you're not a real war photographer, what is a real war photographer? What I'm is a different breed? I'm someone who has covered wars, but it's it. It wasn't the war that interested me. And I'm not just interested in any war. So unlike a lot of my friends who are really great war photographers who hop off to this place and that place and this place and that place, there are certain areas that I care about and I'm willing to take that risk for. Lebanon is a place I'm willing to take that risk for. Palestine is some place I was willing to take that risk for. Iraq was some place I was willing to take that risk for. But not everywhere. Uh, Isn't that enough? I know that you leave Lebanon on your terms to a degree and you enter, you go back to the U.S. once more before being sent again, except this time it's to cover the Intifada. Yeah. So you're always going back and forth and then later Iraq and so on. But the urge to be a war photographer, or sorry, a limited war photographer, a regional war photographer, it's there. It's not like you're covering different terrain. You're most associated with these wartime photos actually I, I would do all kinds of other assignments too I was um, when I went back to Philadelphia you know it's a working class neighborhood and there's boxing gyms on every corner and I grew up around boxing and liking boxing and it's the neighborhood where Rocky was filmed and I went back to the States and I wanted to do a boxing story for the magazine uh, we had a Sunday magazine that had six pages. And so I started doing boxing pictures of the neighborhood. And I saw on the internet that there was a guy named Prince Nassim Hamad, who was a rising star in British boxing. And he was the first Arab sporting superstar before Zaydan. And he was the world featherweight champion. And 
I was, it was the early days of the internet, and I was watching all this buzz about it, and the Brits were going on and on about how he was like the greatest fighter ever, and, you know, Americans, we, we take British boxing with a grain of salt. And so, so I turned on the TV to watch this guy, this Yemeni guy, and he was the most unlikely fighter you'd ever seen. He was short, five foot three, huge ears, really skinny, and he did everything wrong. Everything you shouldn't do in boxing, he would do. And he would dance when he went into the ring. He would punch a guy and go like this, and play to the crowd, and people would go crazy. And anyway, I watched him on TV. He gets knocked down in the first round by an American fighter. I think it's humiliating. The bell rings for round two, and he comes out, and he beats the guy from pillar to post and knocks him out with one punch, and then sort of crows to the crowd. Anyway, I thought he was interesting, so I wrote him a fan letter. And I said, hey, <clears throat> I love boxing. I'm not really a boxing guy. I'd like to do a story about you. But I was Lebanese, and I was you know, a war photographer. And I guess that resonated with them. So they sent me a letter inviting me to go to England to see the guy. Oh. And I did. And I did a big six-page spread on him. And it just happened to be, at the time, he was negotiating his contract with HBO to become the highest paid fighter in his weight division ever in the history of boxing. And so I come home one day and there's a big thing of flowers on my doorstep. And I looked at the note and it said, thank you for the lovely article, Prince Nassim, call me. So I called him and he said, what do you, what, how much are you making there? Come to work for me. And so I got hired by the world featherweight champion to be his, really? Yeah, to be his press guy for like the next two years and travel with him to Wembley Stadium and the Oto Arena and Las Vegas and MGM Grand and yeah, it was a trip. <laughs> it's a huge departure from Lebanon. When the Syrians and Aon and Jaja are fighting each other, you're now covering a boxing champion. Wow. I mean, but ultimately these stories are all about people and people's yeah. experiences. And this guy was an extraordinary character. Allow me to bring up somebody I don't know his name. I don't even know the exact date of the photo. It's my favorite photo of yours. I know it's celebrated often. It's in your office. It's how I got to know you. It's the last photo on the first uh, collage. It's the boy in Martyr's Square carrying a photo of Martyr's Square. So I want to be precise here. Is this photo taken in 1989? before you leave? I think this was taken in 1990. And 1990. It was, it was the first time I was able actually to step foot in Martyr's Square and not I see. be afraid. So it's just after the Civil War just, ends. Just after it ended. You know, the re I, maybe I'm... So 91? I mean, it could be 1990 or 91. I, I don't know. When, when did you officially leave this country? Do you remember which, which year? I never officially left. I mean, <laughs> sorry. It's in your blood. Okay. Well, it's in the early 90s. I know it's I know this photo from many places. And actually, when I first met you, I think I had this photo in me already. Hmm. Not because it's a known photo or not because not because it's you that took the photo. That's my memory of Martyrs Square growing up. The first time I entered Martyrs Square is around then. 1991 after the civil war the old buildings are still there it's pre-solidaire 
It's ruined. It's the green line, but suddenly there's no fighting. And these children selling photos of Martyrs Square. So I know this. I remember this myself. I think that's my personal attachment to this photo. Um, sorry, I, I kind of transcendental experience. Sorry? I mean, for me, it was a, a transcendent experience to be able to walk in that place. Because the figure of the statue, for me, was something always sort of mystic and a holy grail. I mean, in those days, there was the front line, and then there's the front of the front line. And to be at the point, whether you're on the west side or on the east side, where you can actually see the statue, was something you had to work very hard to get to. And it was dicey to be there because there's people not far away shooting at you. And so when the war ended, the first thing I wanted to do was to walk there because I had been there as a kid and uh, in 1967 and 73. So I, I remembered it with vendors, with people selling, you know, corn on the cob, you know, it being full of people. And as a photographer, that was always my goal to get to the front of the front line, especially because I wasn't really very skilled at the beginning and so i made up for what i lacked in skill i made up in proximity and so getting close to that place was always something important to me and when i could walk there freely it was amazing and i remember like looking around and you didn't have to duck you didn't have to run in fact there's people like playing taule and cards and little kids walking around selling chiclets and stuff and it, it's funny which pictures take, because I, I took a lot of pictures that day, I'm sure. But when I saw the kid with the photograph, yeah, it just made a lot of sense. Yeah, and it was just a little moment. I never got his name. I don't know who he is. I looked for him when I was making Beirut Photographer. It's the one kid I could never find. But it's kind of, I don't know. Sometimes these things happen. I would highly recommend, it's a 2012 video. If I'm not mistaken, on Al Jazeera, it's still online. The official name, sorry, is Beirut Photographer. Yeah. Beirut Photographer, watch that video if you haven't already, because it's really the first time you return to Beirut after a photo like that is taken. So that's over two decades go by, and you're back. And now you're one of the favorite guests I've had on the podcast, <laughs> and you're an accomplished... Uh, filmmaker documentary filmmaker your most recent film i got to watch it premiere um in in aub actually woman hold up half the sky i had to memorize that so i didn't take notes <laughs> it's a saying by mao Zedong. oh <laughs> well, i never made that connection <laughs> you and Munal halla is in that uh in that film i mean i love her she's one of my favorite guests as well but it's a collection of storytellers sharing their story I don't know if it's online, if it's a, if it's accessible yet. Has not it, yet. Not, not yet? yet? Okay, well, when it comes out, you should watch it. Um, and you're also an accomplished, or at, le at least a celebrated AUB instructor, so that your students are here as well. AUB in the house. Tell, <laughs> tell me a bit, before we wrap it up, and we'll get to Q&A as well later, but tell me a bit about this transition for you. A transition that I think is remarkable, because you are part of the AUB family, you're lecturing in a way what you do best, you're offering a perspective of somebody that did survive and made it on the other side, 
and you're now looking back and giving the next generation tools. So it's a two-pronged question. The first is, you mentioned skills that you wanted to share. A skill set that you earned or that you honed during the Civil War. What are those skills exactly? And what are you teaching your students exactly? <laughs> because I'm sure you're not teaching them to take photos on their iPhones. I'm going to guess, maybe I'm wrong, but I'm assuming you're not celebrating this, you're trying to celebrate something else. I mean, the iPhone <coughs> is a camera, there's many different kinds of cameras. I guess what I try to teach them is sort of on two levels. One is, is the aesthetics of photography, which is about composition, lighting, moment, right? And then there's the content. What do you have to say about it? What are you trying to say? Camera is a tool. You should know how to use the tool, but it's nothing more than that. It's a, a tool. But there's also a methodology to photography. And especially if the kind of photography you do involves people. How do you make people feel comfortable around you? Mm. How do you go someplace where you don't know anyone? Yeah. How do you enter into a space and come back with the pieces that you need for a story? You know, so those are kind of three different things that, you know, I try to, uh, to try to talk about in my classes. Because there's many good photographers, but a real photographer will take a, a good photograph every time they go out not just occasionally. A photojournalist is something different because it's a person that uses the camera as a tool of journalism, mm. as a tool of storytelling and recording accurately the world and a news event. Um, I like that delineation of the two. Yeah. I mean, there's many different kinds of photography. There's Instagram photography, right? Social media photography, documentary photography, photojournalism, sports photography. Each one requires a different approach. They all use a camera. That's what they have in common. Art photography. Uh, what I try to teach my students is the methodology of documentary photography or photojournalism. And a lot of it is interpersonal skills. A lot of it is getting rid of the sensor in your brain, the little voice in your shoulder that's telling you, don't take the picture, you know, this or that. There's a lot of self-censorship that goes on in photography, especially in a space like Lebanon where people often object to having their photograph taken. So we talk, try to talk about all these things. And sorry, you're, you're able to teach the, this generation, the younger generation, how to be more accommodating with the... I mean, I'm trying to see what it is that you mentioned. It's about people and trying to make people comfortable. It depends which type of photography that you do. But as mm -hmm. a photojournalist or documentary photography, we're, for the most part, not interested in buildings and cityscapes and nature. Right. We're interested in the human condition. And how do you do that exactly when you have this intimidating camera and your students are across Beirut taking these photos? What exactly are you telling them? Do you have to, do you have to approach with a certain care? Is it a, is it a finesse? I sort of went like to attended master classes in photography, I have to say. Well, I didn't study it. I was really lucky that when I landed in Beirut, I learned the geography of Beirut and the geography of the militias and the powers. And so when we traveled together in pairs, as photographers do in wartime, so in case you're wounded, you're not alone, people used to like to pair up with me. 
because I knew the terrain, but I wasn't a very good photographer. Mm. So as a result, I got to travel with Catherine Lavoie. I got to travel with James Natchway. I got to travel with Eli Reed, some really great photojournalists, Aral, Alfred. And watching the way they work was really my school. Mm. When are they aggressive? When are they quiet? When do they elbow their way into the center of the pack? When do they disappear? And that's what I tried to teach the students, you know, how to, uh, just to how to manage and how to, how to think of yourself. You know, as a photojournalist, I'll take pictures that I would never, as a civilian, I, I wouldn't take, just because I know that that's my role in the world. I'm here as the photojournalist, my job is to record whatever happens, you know, full stop, no matter what anyone says. That empowers you in a way, especially if you have a, an ethical responsibility to be the eyes of, you know, the news consuming world. Um, so it's, it's really knowing your terrain before you pursue whatever it is you're doing. It's yeah. adjusting yourself and having a feel and for knowing it. how to negotiate it. How to negotiate, right. You know, uh, George, I have two more questions and then we'll take a small break. Uh, the first is the first time I met you was in your AUB office, I think on October 19 or 20, 2019, or thereabouts. The first days, maybe the first week, I, I can't remember the exact time, could be a little later. Literally, protests were raging across Beirut, in particular Martyrs Square, and we were talking about that moment. It never occurred to me that on your desktop, you were showing me photos of Martyrs Square taken by your students. Hmm. I thought that was quite beautiful. You're actually now teaching the next generation a photo that you've taken and mastered yourself. I thought that was quite poetic. Um, so that's not really a question. That's just a statement. <laughs> no, I, I, I'm really I just, proud I of I thought it was them. beautiful. And for I'm me really to proud see of the students. And honestly, like <clears throat> over the summertime when there's nothing to do as a teacher, I went back through all their photos. And to be honest, like during the course of the year, I'm going, Shitty, 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 mediocre, boring, 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 boring. But actually looking back on it in retrospect, it's interesting to see the themes that they as a collective record. And the time before the meltdown, before the Thawra, before the economic collapse, the photos of are of dance parties and lovers in an alleyway and trans shows and drag shows and fun and and then it all turns to Thaura the next year yeah and then it all turns to economic collapse the next year and then it all turns to covid pictures the next year and collectively they really have done a better job than i did during those time periods of i don't know about that the world around us i don't know no about that. no and and i'm proud to say i mean i when i look at their pictures i can see that somehow they're informed by my aesthetic and the aesthetic of the people who trained me mm. because mm. photography is a lot about mentorship you know i had mentors i had photographers who shaped the way i look at the world shaped the way i go about the job and I think of it as kind of a lineage, you know. So I, I couldn't be more happy, more happy with them, really. I think AUP is very lucky to have you. The last question, and I'm sorry to bring this without preparation. Um, there's somebody I really wanted on the podcast. I invited him officially, then he passed away. 
Robert Fisk. He actually gave me his email. I'll never forget this. It was something odd like pennyjane at gmail.com or some odd name that was his. I have to find that card. But he was quite rude. He was abrasive. He was eager to get rid of me. <laughs> I was walking with him on the corniche, telling him, I promise you, you'll enjoy the experience. We talked about many things. It was the last time I saw him. Then he passed away. Anyway. The reason I'm bringing him up is because he's a fixture during those years. He's not a photographer. He's a writer. He's a fantastic storyteller. I don't really care about what he wrote later in life. Those years, he shined. Did you know him personally? Oh, very well. Yeah. Can you share something about him? And I don't want it to be uh, hard on him because I know plenty of the... I've experienced the hard side of Robert Fisk. I'd like to know the better years. Fisk, Fisk was a martyr of this war. Fisk loved this country. And, you know, say what you will about the man. He was a great reporter. He made people care. Even if he fudged the facts sometimes, he told the truth. He told the real truth. And he told it in a way that spoke to people and resonated with people. And... This job will destroy anyone. It destroyed him. It destroyed him. And it was tragic. It was really tragic to see. I remember Fisk from 1981. And we worked in the same office, out of the same office. Tom Friedman was there. I knew you were going to say time. Yeah. And what different characters. <laughs> what different characters. Fisk was a great man. I think he's a great man. A flawed man. You know, damaged man. A really great man. Great reporter. Did you know him in more recent years as well? Okay, so that friendship lingered till the end. As much as one can be friends with Robert Fisk. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, there's something about him that I don't, I don't know. You know him. You're friends with him. You've known him for the better part of his professional career. I knew him as a fixture. Somebody I would run into at Smith's Supermarket. And Hamdav, for those that remember Smith's, Patrick, if you remember Patrick. And I would see him in my younger years, and he seemed already complicated, to say the least. Bitter. There was an edge to him. But he would he still show up. an angry man. An angry man. He would still show up, though. I would have nights out. We'd be drinking. And he'd be there drinking more than any of us. I'll never forget. He finished two bottles of wine at our table, got up, and left. And we all started saying, oh, we got fists. <laughs> he would do this. But I thought that's fine. That's fine. He, In a way, he earned some of that. He had seen too much for too long. Do you think that is why you decided to leave in 1990? That you saw something happening to you that would have taken you down that kind of road? Absolutely. Absolutely. I just had to step away from the table. Yeah, it was too much. And actually, I, the only reason I came back, like in a serious way, was to make Beirut Photographer. And I didn't realize it at the time, but it was like art therapy for me to have to confront these people and talk to them about the images and, you know, revisit this terrain, which was deeply burned in me. But uh, yeah, it was, it was liberating for me. But that, that is why I stepped away. I'm glad you did. 
if anyone's interested, I wrote an obituary to Robert Fisk. I called it Skyline and Shore. And the reason I called it that, it's that's the last time I saw him walking from Ainem Reisi to downtown, sandwiched between the skyline of downtown and the Mediterranean. In my opinion, he still shines. And he left us with a great book, Pity the Nation, and, and much more. But uh, I'm glad I got to bring him up in this podcast. And I'm really honored to sit with you because I've been doing this for a long time. I got goosebumps just listening to you. I think the audience did as well. We've been all in tune the whole time. So thanks to you. 10 minute break, order whatever you want. Q&A follows. <laughs> thanks, George. The Q&A started. Uh, let's make this fun. Anyone who has a, uh, a dark humor joke <laughs> or a story to share or question, whatever, uh, let's, let's, let's enjoy the Q&A. So is there anyone that wants to say something up front? Any questions before we begin? Uh, I wonder who that is. Introduce yourself. And if you could stand up. Let's make it uncomfortable. <laughs> Who you are and the question. Hello, I'm May Rebe, but I'm also George's wife. But I think George has two stories to tell that... Hello? Oh, yeah. I think George has two stories I think would be amazing to tell. And that is not necessarily in order, but how you were uh, taken away in the GA. But then how you came back, more importantly, because that's an amazing story in itself. How you came back, just because you were so adamant about telling, uh, about continuing your work, and just how you came back was uh, crazy. So, yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, when the war broke out in 1982, <coughs> I didn't have any assignments. And... I got a big break because I was there when the Israelis launched their first airstrikes on Beirut and they hit the national stadium. And I got photographs of it exploding and I sent them to my photo agency in Paris and they told me, okay, this is great. You're on assignment now for Newsweek. And I was very, very happy because compared to working for the wire services, working for the international news magazines was a big bump up. So I was very enthusiastic, and I, I took off to the south after a couple of days, and we went as far south as we could. I was with two other photographers, and we got as far as the town of Gie, and it was completely abandoned. And the Israelis were pushing up the road towards us with about 25,000 men, and we weren't exactly sure where they were. And we got out of the car, and we were photographing, and the other photographers said, okay, we have enough. We're going back to the taxi. And they went back to the taxi. And uh, I continued shooting. Although in retrospect, it, was, it wasn't really that interesting. And all of a sudden I heard, 
And things start exploding all around me. So I gathered up my cameras and I ran down the little coast road to the gas station. And there was no car there. And I looked around and there was, there was no, my friends were not there and the car wasn't there. And there was nobody. And the place was really exploding with, you know, shell fire. And I saw these Palestinian guys and they said, shh, 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 come with us. And I ran under the banana groves. And there was like 10 of them. And they were sitting drinking tea and smoking cigarettes. And I said, like, really wild eyed, you know, like, did you see a taxi, like, with journalists? And they said, oh, yeah, you know, I could take off. And they went that way, like, back to Beirut. And I looked around and I said, okay, where are your other comrades? And they said, no, it's just us. And I'm thinking, there's 10 of you guys. And I said, well, what are you going to do? And they said, well, we're going to stay here and fight. And I said, okay, there's 25,000 Israeli forces coming up the road here. How far are they? And they said, oh, two kilometers. And I said, okay, where's your Jeep? And they said, we don't have a Jeep. <laughs> I just thought, there's no way to get out of this town. I'm stuck here with these guys. And <clears throat> On one part of my mind, I thought, okay, this is a Pulitzer Prize. You know, last battle of Palestinian garrison in GA being overrun by the Israelis. And I thought, you're going to die for sure if you do that. So I, I you know, had my coffee. I smoked a cigarette. I tried to act cool. And I said, okay, you have to go Alfie, all of you guys. It was great seeing you. Good luck. And I went and I went banging on all the doors of the houses to see if there was any place to take shelter, but everybody had left. And I've <laughs> I remember like hiding in a ditch and the shelling was getting really, really heavy. And it, when you're hiding in a ditch and the shelling is really like all around you, it's just a numbers game whether it hits you. And funny things go through your mind. And I remember thinking, if I get hit by a shell and I'm blown up, I'm gonna burn up along with all my ID cards, and nobody will ever know what happened to me, which was very disturbing. And then I thought, ah, that's why soldiers have dog tags, so after they get hit by an artillery shell, there's still something to identify the body, but I don't have a dog tag. Anyway, I went banging on the houses, and I finally found somebody who would open the door, and there was an old blind man named Gibran, and there was a group of Palestinians, a family, that had come from Minot Halloway, and they were sheltered in this house. And we got down on the floor, and we could hear, like, a battle outside. And all of a sudden, the room started going crazy with machine guns firing inside the house. And we could hear, boom, boom, boom. And I thought, oh, shit. They're blowing up the houses with tanks as they come down this road. And so I took the old man's coat, and I made a white flag, because I had read heard on the BBC that it, you should wave a white flag if uh, there's no terrorists inside. So I was waving this white flag and I hear screaming outside and I open the door and there's two Israeli soldiers standing there screaming at me in Hebrew and I had my hands above my head. And I looked down the road and it was as though there was a parade going as far as you could see of Israeli armor and tanks and helicopters overhead as they swept over the tank the town and they took me down to the road and I had my hands above my head 
And they said, no, you know, there's no terrorists in that house, you know, and they brought the people out of the house. And then the command car came, and I presented myself. I said, listen, I'm from Newsweek magazine, I'm assigned to cover the war, and the guy says to me, I'm too busy fighting a war, I don't have time for you, we'll deal with you later, and he drives off. So I'm left standing there, like watching this parade of troops going by, Israeli troops going towards Beirut. And some of them are like waving at me and smiling. And I realized, oh, they think I came with them. They don't know who I am. So I waved at them, they waved back. I took my camera, I took a little picture. They didn't say anything, they're like, ah, come on. So I sort of joined this parade of soldiers going up the road. There's some pictures on Instagram of it. And I could photograph anything I wanted. And like a guy like tapped me on the shoulder and he goes, watch this. He takes a rocket out of his pack. He puts it on his machine gun. Somebody's like $40,000 pickup truck that they had saved their whole lives for just goes. And as they went down the road, they would just blow up every single house they passed and I would photograph it. And so I stayed with them for three days. They took over the house that belonged to Camille Shamoun. There's a mansion there mm-hmm. on that road. They didn't know what it was. They stormed it. They took it over. They used it as a base. And I sat with them for three days, like photographing them, saturation bombing Damour, getting ready to storm it. The whole time they didn't know that you're a Leban- They didn't know who they, you were. I said I was from Newsweek. That was oh, like said, enough uh, for them. They knew you were a journalist. Yeah, I'm an American. That. I'm from Newsweek. Uh, Anyway, they would bring in prisoners. Oh, so they thought you came up with them. They thought I came with them. Oh, from Israel north. Yeah. I see, I see. Yeah. Because yeah. I have an American manner, right. you know. Anyway, that lasted for like three days. And then finally, a command car came for me. And they took me up to a hill overlooking, you know, the coast. And they brought me in to see the Israeli general. And he was sitting behind a desk. And he says... Tell me who you are. <laughs> I said, I'm Newsweek correspondent. I'm from Beirut. And he looks at me and he says, Ah, the nest of terrorists. So you live with the terrorists, huh? And he comes over. He opens my jacket. I had like 12 rolls of film. Destroys them all. He didn't know that I had some film in my underwear. I had three rolls of color film and two rolls of black and white film. They didn't strip search me. And he said, okay, this is what we're going to do with you. You'd like to live with the terrorists? We're going to send you back to the terrorists. We're going to have a jeep come here. They're going to take you to our front line. And you can go back to your friends, the Arabs. And I said, if they see someone walking from behind Israeli lines through no man's land, they're just going to shoot me down. And he said, oh, that's your problem. Go. So I walk outside, and I sit down on this rock, and I think, you're going to execute me. This is like an execution, but the blood won't be on their hands because our guys will have done it. And like at times like that, like the, <laughs> the file cards in your mind just start badly spinning, like, how am I going to get out of this? How am I going to get out of this? And while I'm sitting there, an Israeli soldier approaches me, but he's got cameras on, and he's kind of an older guy. And he said, who are you? And George Azar. Who do you work for? Newsweek. How'd you get the assignment? Agence Gamma. Who do you know at Agence Gamma? Fleurice de Monville. Who do you know on the desk at uh, Newsweek? Jim Colton. He didn't say anything else, and he walks inside, goes inside the tent. 
And he comes back and he said, I've never begged for anything in my life, but I beg this general not to execute you and to take you on the next helicopter to Matula. To where? Matula. And he said, my name is Shlomo Arad. I'm the Newsweek contract photographer in Tel Aviv. And I'm attached to the Israeli army. And so they put me on this helicopter. And I had this film in my underwear. He said, do you have any film on you? And I said, yeah, it's, it's in my underwear. And he said, here, take this. And it was 100 Israeli shekels. And I'll never forget, I didn't know, like, is this like $100? Is this like $10? I had no... And he, the helicopter flies up, 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 and banks really severely over the Mediterranean, takes off down the coast, and you could see all of Lebanon, like, on fire. I could see Beirut to Sur, and just plumes of smoke over all the refugee camps, airstrikes happening, blah, blah, blah. So it flies for like five minutes and it banks really hard and we're over northern Israel and there's like people sunbathing and cars stopping at lights and people mowing their lawns and we fly into the air base and they're evacuating wounded off the aircraft and the thing about times of war is there's sort of opportunities in the chaos I sort of understood that from my time in Beirut and so I could see the the gate of the uh, of the airfield, and so I just started walking, looking at my feet towards the gate, and I walked right out of the gate, and I realized they check you when you enter a military facility, not when you're leaving it, and so they just let me walk off. And I had read in some article that in Israel they hitchhiked like this rather than like this. So I put out my thumb, and I hitchhiked to Jerusalem. Wait, sorry, sorry, sorry. Hold on. I, uh I mean, I, wait, are, you're not, this is all real? Yeah. Yeah, and I had, the thing is, my clothes were like really dirty. My knees were torn out. I didn't have any ID because I had left all my things in the taxi cab because I thought I was just going for a little walk. And uh, anyway, I hitchhiked all the way to Jerusalem. And I handed over the pictures to Newsweek. And I said, like, this is amazing stuff. This is like refugees in a house that's getting shelled and soldiers blowing up houses and they took all the film and I thought oh like Pulitzer Prize <laughs> and the pictures came out the next week and it was pictures of two guys in the back of a pickup truck shooting at Israeli jets and a picture of a civilian walking through Fakani and none of the pictures that I had taken and smuggled to them of the Israeli actions ever appeared and were ever saw again. And the only reason I can prove it is they only published in color, and so I kept the black and ro white rolls. So I have the black, black and white versions of, of those pictures. Have you, have you released those photos? Yeah, they're, they're actually on the Instagram. Sorry, they're on the ones you posted today? Yeah. Oh, sorry. So that's the first collage, I guess? Uh, uh, well, they're in the Instagram. They're in one of those two posts. This but anyway, they, they released me in Israel after I handed over the film. And I didn't know anything about Palestine. I mean, or, or Israel, or even really where I was. But I knew the name Birzeit University. And so I figured, oh, if I go to Birzeit University, I'll meet friendly people. And so I took a taxi out to Birzeit University and I happened to meet this guy, this actually great man named Albert Agazarian, 
who was a history professor there and in charge of communications for Beers 8. And he Sorry, took me I home. To, I have to interrupt you, George. So you're wearing the same clothes you took off from when you left Beirut. You're wearing the same outfit. You have the same underwear. Yeah. <laughs> and now you're crossing. Sorry, jeans. And <laughs> yeah. And you're just making your way to a university you'd heard of? Yeah. I mean, wow. yeah, it's in Ramallah. I, yeah. You know. But this is before, there's no Google Maps. You're you're just finding a taxi that says, you know, and you knew how to get to the office in Jerusalem. Well, I just went knocking on doors and, oh, yeah, yeah, the Newsweek office, and I found it. And Yeah. They, they weren't, the they thing weren't is, shocked to see you? They weren't? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Because they thought I was dead. Everyone thought I was dead. And the people back in Beirut thought I was dead because I went south and I never came back. Uh, so you could have actually faked your own death at that point and sort of I could have become some. <laughs> and actually, when I eventually got back to Beirut, like I went to my room and my sleeping bag was gone. My shortwave radio was gone. They all thought you were gone. They said, well, we thought you were dead. So we passed around your belongings. <laughs> Sorry, I interrupted you. So you're making your way to. Yeah, so I went to Beers 8. Yeah. It was kind of shocking for me, actually, to see occupied Palestine. I had never been there before. And it was at a time of like super great national crisis for the Palestinian movement. And there was not one flag, there was not one demonstration, there was not one person shouting. And I thought, these people have been crushed. They have been crushed under the jackboot of the Israeli occupation. I mean, it's a place where holding a flag will send you to prison. And so it really gave me a deep appreciation for the depth of the oppression happening in the West Bank. Yeah. Anyway, I spent a little bit of time there. And eventually I went to Haifa and I took a, a ferry to Cyprus. And then from Cyprus, I took a ferry to Junier. And then there was a lull in the action. So I was able to cross from, you know, from East Beirut via, you know, the, uh, the crossing here at the sea back into uh into Aina Maraisi. and the whole city had changed i mean sorry to make it as detailed as possible how, how do you do that that hundred note helped you the whole way i mean how no no <laughs> Who, people i got more money once i got to the newsweek office but they fired me essentially they fired you and gave you some cash well, yeah they gave me money and to buy some clothes and stuff like that but they took away my assignment although i had you know I think I had delivered on the assignment and the day rate, but they gave it away to a European photographer. And, uh, but I still wanted to come back. So I came back, and by that time, that time, Ras Beirut was surrounded. The Israelis had positions up in the mountains and on the sea. There was no water. It was the height of summer. There was no food in the shops. They had tried some amphibious landings at, uh, on the sea and tried to break through at... Uh, at Cornish Mazara. Uh, yeah. So. I could listen to you for hours, actually. <laughs> talking about. Thank you for those questions. Are there other questions from the lady in the front? Thank you. Um, I imagine that it was difficult to get things like film during a like amidst a civil war i imagine and i was wondering if you could speak a bit about that and if like sort of at the beginning when you were working independently if you were developing your own film 
and what that was like and what your space was like or what it was like just getting the physical materials um, like in the context of a civil war I'd love to hear about that yeah I, I had taken one photo class in college in the uh, school of architecture at Berkeley and a lot was it was all about technical perfection and so we had a very pristine dark room with very controlled temperatures for you know the developer and the stop bath and the fixer and you know timers and clocks and when i got to beirut i went to the ap <laughs> and i had to them my film and there's a guy named zohair sadi who was the photo uh the photo editor and he took me into the dark room he had like no clock and he would <laughs> just like hit the enlarger you know the image would uh, go down onto the paper he'd wait to what he thought was an appropriate amount of time. He'd take it out, he'd put it in the f developer, he put it in the stop bath, he put it into the fixer, he'd sort of warm it up with his elbow, he'd shake it, and that was a picture. And they had a way of dealing with photos that was fast and mm. sort of guerrilla-like. And a lot of times during the war, like, just getting the water for the developer was, you know, a mission. And I remember, actually, during hard times, walking around looking for clean water to use for the developer. And then we used to transmit the pictures over something called a um, telefax machine. And it would go, you would take an 8x10 picture and you'd put it around a cylinder and it had a phonograph needle that would scan it. And it would take, I don't know, like half an hour to, uh, to transmit a, you know, one just photo. one photo. Yeah. And here in Beirut, the lines were, the telephone lines were crazy. And they would drop all the time, and so you had to start it again. I mean, this was the kind of place where you'd pick up the telephone and you'd, like, wait for a dial tone. And, like, it was, like, sometimes people's job in the family, like, just to dial phone numbers because you'd have to dial it again and again and again and again. And sometimes you get other people talking on the line. So transmitting the photos was, like, a really, really big part of the job. Yeah, and uh, and actually when we started shooting color, you couldn't develop color film back then here. So we had to ship it out. And so because the airport was closed, just getting your film transported, say, from here to Syria, where somebody could take it on a plane and fly it to London or Paris, that was a really big part of the job. And I lost many, many sort of assignments because I took the pictures, but I couldn't get them yeah. to Paris or London in time for the deadline. Other questions? Mr. Samir. <coughs> Hi. So over the last few years, I've been hearing a lot of even people from my age, those who've lived the Civil War, uh, say something to the effect of, oh, those were better times than we're going through right now. What would you have to say about that? <laughs> I think people have short memories. Those were terrible times. I mean, the insecurity of walking down the street and not knowing if a car is going to explode. You know, the, hearing shell fire and machine gun fire constantly. Being afraid that you're going to be kidnapped. Just, yeah. No, I, I, I don't buy into any of that. It's a really short historic memory. It's true there was more money. Some things were a little bit easier. We had hope, actually. We had hope that the world was going to be a better place. That was, in some ways, the biggest difference. We mm. thought that 
the world was getting better, that Lebanon would eventually get better, that... But the warriors, I mean, it was really like... I'm sorry to romanticize it, because it was really like one big car crash. And, you know, people's lives were destroyed in an instant. And the thing that I realized is, the thing about violence is, it might, you know, it might get marked down in the tally as one casualty, one person shot on one day. But the ripple effect, it spreads throughout the family, throughout the friends, throughout... It's it's profound, and... Yeah, and... Uh, let, let I mean, me, it affects people on every level, and I, although it is better in some ways now, people say it's hard. It's, it's not hard like that. It's not hard like that. I'll build on Samer's question. Are there any parallels... Removing that violence, which is an obvious difference, which is also interesting, the, the parallel about having hope in the 80s versus today, removing that, is there any, is there any um, semblance to collapse, feeling like the country has crashed, that exists in the last few years as it did in the 80s? Is there anything that matches? Yeah, I mean, the country has collapsed to, today in, the, in that same way. Yeah, I mean, in But, terms of like hyperinflation in the 80s, for example. I guess that's the parallel example. Was there, are there any emotional parallels? In some way, the feeling that there's no end in sight is, is similar. <laughs> oh, yeah, right, there you go, that's true. The feeling that yeah. there's no end in sight I remember feeling that, like this war is never going to end. It was a long, long, long war, a long period, and with a lot of false hopes, because there were many times when we thought, okay, the war is over, and it would just break out again. And the feeling that things are beyond your control, it's really in the control of the people in Tel Aviv, the people in Washington, the people in Moscow, the people in Damascus, you know. That is similar, that is similar. There was a question in the back earlier. I saw someone with their hand. Yes, the lady. Sorry, uh, Habibi. What was, uh, yeah. Okay. What was the biggest motivation that drove you to leave everything in uh, the U.S. and come to Lebanon as a photographer? Well, I sort of had the responsibility, uh, the feeling that I was privileged growing up in America, growing up in the States, and that, I mean, had the stork made a different decision, I could have been born here. I could have been born into the life of a militiaman or something like that. And with that privilege comes a certain responsibility. And my generation, maybe it's a little bit different than this generation, but we were idealistic and we had a sense of service and the idea that we should work to make the world a better place and that that's everyone's job to work to make the world a better place and i don't know i saw it as maybe one little area where i could do something you know if nothing else just by giving testament to what was happening here and i had this very false naive idea that political decisions are taken because people don't really know what's going on because there was a huge lack of information back then And so uh, I guess my motivation was just that, to provide information. 
I never do this. I'm going to ask the person who just asked a question a question. You're George Azar's student at AUB. What made you select his course? Well, I'm studying international relations and I've always been fond on uh, photography. Uh, I've never studied photography and uh, I found uh, like the opportunity of studying at AUB with uh, this professor like a great opportunity. Uh, and also I've talked, there's a very like close friend of our family who's a photographer and uh, I've always like talked with him about the fact that sometimes like it's not the methodology and like the practice of uh, the, sorry the study of photography that makes you a photographer but the experience uh, so i that's what like why i make this question because sometimes uh, it's not like what are you studying that drives you as like the person you will be in the future but like your experience in life and like the reason why you're doing something so yeah that's it <laughs> no the reason i asked also because like I found that in my generation, I, I'm 23 years old, people are not motivated enough. And I see, for example, my, my parents who are very motivated and who were very motivated to open their businesses and their companies. And also, for example, our professor was motivated to take a plane and go to Lebanon to report like the war, even though he has never studied the uh, photography. People now, from my like in my generation, they're not motivated enough to take this and like uh, they don't have this sense of service uh, to report and like take the voice and uh, stand up. Yeah, that's it. Thank you for letting me ask you. And the reason I wanted to go in that direction is I think that's the advantage of going into academia later that you have, a, you have decades of experience under your belt. So I think that's the way to teach what you're teaching. It would be very odd if you started your career at AUB. Mm. So I think that, yeah, anyway, sorry for interjecting a bit. There were more questions. Adrian. Um, I think it's a continuation of what was just talked about. Um, you came in a way with something to say when you first came to Lebanon. Maybe not a clear path, but something you wanted to explore. How did your experience throughout the war and throughout your entire life, actually, your entire, entire career, how did that change your perception, if at all, or your worldview? Did it affect your worldview and did it change? When I came, I was much more wedded to politics and slogans and ideals. And I think the one thing that the Lebanon experience would do to anyone is dash any ideals, any ideological ideals or political ideals. And the thing that I love about photography and I love about journalism is it's about just being a witness and not drawing conclusions from that. And I found that that was enough. Let me see what I see. Let me report on it accurately without a political agenda and let the chips fall where they may. Uh, so it deepened my appreciation for journalism, for that kind of journalism. Um, yeah. But um, for me, photography was always a tool, in a way. A tool of, a political tool, in some ways, or a sociological tool. Uh, but I, do, I still really believe in journalism, although being older now, I understand the other forces at work. I mean, they don't call it the news business, for nothing it's a business 
It's a business that's run, run by corporate entities, largely Western, Northern Hemisphere corporate entities. And a lot of these experiences, which I thought were just my own experiences or my own mess-ups, like getting fired by Newsweek, I realize now are part of a, a systematic, you know, system-wide uh, uh, phenomenon. And so that, that sort of helps me get a handle on it. And, uh, but the thing that's funny is photography has changed and our relationship to photography has changed and the amount of photography that's going on now has changed. And information has also changed. When I was a kid, if I wanted to know about Lebanon, I had to go to the public library and get a, the encyclopedia that said L and there would be an article. That was it, <laughs> you know? Uh, so this is something I'm still wrapping my head around. But I think the only thing that I can pass on to students is how to use a camera, how to make a frame, how to compose a shot, how to think about light. If you're dealing with people, how to interact with, with those people. And so in some ways, you know, this art form has democratized. It doesn't necessarily mean that people have something to say. You still need to have something to say. But yeah, I mean, it's a big privilege now to be at AUB. It's an institution that I respect a lot. I have a huge respect for them. And yeah, I think I found like a comfortable place to talk about these things with young people. Other questions? Nothing? Oh. <laughs> Next episode is with well, you about no. George Azar. <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 but it's interesting just how George reacted to the explosion in Beirut in August versus me, a civilian. So as the photojournalist reacted to it and then the civilian, his wife, <laughs> I think that's an interesting, just, uh, <clears throat> just a, a picture of how somebody who's so dedicated <laughs> to journalism <laughs> as opposed to somebody who's just a, a civilian. When the uh, the day of the explosion happened, you know, it had, the smoke had been rising for a while and we were watching it from our house, which is in Sanaya, about two kilometers away. And we could see this white smoke happening and burning and burning. We didn't really know what it was. And then uh, my desk faces the uh, the window and there's a big glass panel there. And I got up and I walked towards May, who was at her desk, and I said, Hey, sweetie, you know, that that thing is, like, continuing to burn. And then we felt this little earthquake. And I looked at her, and she looked at me. And the next thing I knew, the wall blew in. I was on the floor, glass all around me. And I remember, like, being on the floor and looking up and seeing more tower. And there was a mushroom cloud, like an atomic mushroom cloud. And it was red. <laughs> which was even more alarming. And I love my wife, but if she was in the hostile environment training camp, she would get an F because her reaction it was to scream madly like a normal person would. And just she was shouting and screaming. And I ran and I got my camera and I took one frame and she said, what are you doing? You're taking pictures now. You know, we thought that the building had been hit by a shell. And May's mother was in her 90s and next door. 
And so she said, go see my mother, go see my mother. So I, I was putting on my shoes and she said, just run, run. And I said, sweetie, floor is covered with glass, I can't. So I put my boots on, went and saw that everybody was okay. I could see the, our whole neighborhood, all, all the blasts. Blast had knocked all the windows out, trees were in the street. But it was different than being young and here and alone, because I was here with a family and it was my city now. And it's the only big story I've ever encountered where I really didn't rush down and shoot because there was people I cared about to take care of. And so my, I really didn't shoot the explosion other than those few frames and, and later the cleanup. Although it's the biggest story of, you know, the last decade. And I don't know. It was a dif different decision. It's the same me. It's a different decision. That's fascinating. So you're not really a photojournalist at that moment. You're someone else. Yeah. I mean, and the advantage that I had, the privilege I had during the Civil War was, it wasn't my city being burned down. Yeah. It was a city that I cared about. Yeah. But it wasn't the city I grew up in where I had families. And that's why I really tip my hat to the, real, the Lebanese photographers who covered this war. Because the d dynamic for them was different. I cared about it, but my family wasn't here they weren't these weren't my streets in the same way oh. but now they are <laughs> William and Neve have been very kind they've let us run on a bit maybe one more question if there's anyone that wants to ask a final question is William here William ask a question no <laughs> you're good at asking questions they all make it to the episode no that's it adrian you can ask the last question one more question great we've spoken question. so much together in the last month that a lot of my questions were answered one-to-one -one, <laughs> and i'm very grateful for that by the way it's been really nice um i'm trying to think of something that hasn't been said yet because you covered a lot of ground actually this may not be as uh, emotive but I actually am very curious you were not stamped into Israel so how did they let you out ah. <laughs> so it's very journalistic of me to ask but it was a question that crossed my mind yeah they actually had to issue me a new uh, passport down there and uh, I don't remember it was a long time No, 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 no. I, I had my passport stamped proper on that that trip. That wasn't uh, a smuggling trip. Yeah, somehow they managed to get me a, a new American passport and uh, an an exit stamp. But yeah, it was like some bureaucratic com, com uh, complication. You use that passport then to come back to Lebanon. Yeah. So how would that work if you had an Israeli issued American passport? It was wartime. Wartime. Yeah. I see. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Actually, I don't remember. It must not have had an Israeli stamp in it. But listen, I, you know, I came in smuggled through the Port of Junier and then across the Green Line. And, right. You know. So that you smuggled yourself back in. Yeah. Right. I see. Yeah. Good job. <laughs> Fuck Carlos Rosson. This is George Azal. <laughs> Thank <laughs> you.
Thank you. Thank you. Maybe that should be the name of the episode. <laughs> no, okay. I don't think so. No, I don't think so either. <laughs> Listen, George, uh, I'll tell you from my side. Um, I mean it. This may be my favorite episode to date. And <laughs> lesson learned, maybe, don't take notes. <laughs> but I think it's with you. I don't need to take any notes because uh, you are a storytelling professional and you should do this more. I'm honored that you've done podcast episodes with me. Now this is our third exchange. Um, I hope there's in the future an easier way to discover all your work in one place. I know that you're reluctant to do that, but I think it would help the next generation reappreciate your work. Maybe not Instagram, but even a landing site where we can really celebrate you the right way. There's so much online. It's just not easy to get in one go. So that's my way of saying I want to do this more and I want to explore your work as much as I can on my own time. I think the audience does this on their own. Um, there's no better way to end it other than saying uh, you're a treasure to this country. I'm glad you're still here. I'm glad that you're at AUB. And I'd like to invite you again sooner than later to talk about all those other stories that you didn't <laughs> share tonight. And it's always fun to see you in the nightlife of Beirut. We were both audience members of Adrian's last show in Sinedfil, right? With And it was the earlier audio expert. He was performing there. It's fun to see you in the nightlife. Thank you. I like that. Thank you. I saw you recently with a common friend of ours, Noor Haidar, walking in Jamesa. You guys were a bit tipsy. Yeah. It feels good to have you in that fabric. I enjoy seeing you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, George Azar. Thank you. So, Instagram, Jirji Azar. <laughs> Follow him. You'll see the photos that were discussed tonight. Follow the Beirut Banyan on social media. Uh, next week is Najat Aoun Saliba. Mm. Not in Parliament, here. And she gave me permission to be very hard on her. So you should come for that. <laughs> Bring your tomatoes. There will be a vegetable fair next door. You can throw things, but not at me, at her. Uh, I also want to say... Uh, a fantastic audience member is in here right now. He's on his phone, but that's fine. Ammar Abid Ramu. Yeah. The maestro. Maestro. He's coming on the podcast, even though he's reluctant. I'm going to make it happen. <laughs> no, we agreed George will sit in the audience. We'll talk about George <laughs> from here. No, you're coming on soon. And it's a treat, as always. Thank you. Thank you, George. Thank you. Appreciate that. Fantastic. Thank you. That was fun. That was incredible. <laughs>